Welcome to Queer Lodgings, the queer-led podcast about everything Tolkien. I'm Leah, and I'm here with my co-host, Grace. Hello. Alicia. Hello, hello. And also our producer and token man, Tim. Tolkien white man reporting for duty. Thank you for your service. Thank you so much for joining us today. Go ahead and pull up a cozy armchair, grab yourself a cup of chamomile and lavender tea, and maybe grab a nip of whiskey as well, because today we're going to be talking about toxic masculinity and patriarchy stuff. So you're going to want something to soothe yourself with. It's going to be a great conversation, I promise. One that we hope will start another series about the men and different masculinities of Middle Earth because there are so many characters in that category, and there's a lot more that we can talk about than we can really talk about just today. But we definitely want to talk about it all very soon. So today, we want to explore a few different men, by which I mean the gender, not the species or race with a capital M, through their presentations of different masculinities. What kinds of masculinities does Tolkien choose to portray with these characters, both overtly and maybe more unconsciously? What was Tolkien maybe trying to show us about men in his world and in our world with his characters? Before we get too far, let's acknowledge up front that when we talk about gender and about gender presentations, what we mean when we say masculinity is going to be highly variable, fluid, and multifaceted. There is no essential definition of masculinity. As Oscar Fernandez Alvarez says in his article, Non-Hegemonic Masculinity Against Gender Violence, gender is dynamic, culturally and socially. The stereotypes, ideologies, behaviors, and lifestyles conventionally associated with feminine and masculine vary considerably from one culture to another. Secondly, women and men are not universal and unalterable essences, but rather specific existences, changing and far from uniform. Masculinity is a set of constantly changing meanings, which signifies different things to different men at different ages, in different periods, and different societies. Hence, fortunately, not all men are the same. Likewise, masculinity is not static or timeless, but rather historical. It is not the manifestation of an inner essence, but constructed socially does not bubble up into consciousness from biological foundations, but is created by culture. For our purposes here, we'll be using the word masculinities and masculinity to describe different ways of being men, or the behaviors, values, attributes, and roles associated or attributed to men. It's deliberately open enough to allow for different men with different ways of being men to be considered under an umbrella of men and masculinity, while still allowing us to hone in on and name particular expressions that have particular specific attributes, values, behaviors, etc. That being said, let's acknowledge the Oliphant in the forests of Athelion. We and Tolkien live and lived in a world that historically, socially, and systemically rewards, empowers, and upholds a certain form of masculinity, which Robert Connell identifies as hegemonic masculinity. This masculinity is based on male domination over and the oppression of other genders through force and violence and upholds inequality and hierarchical power based on gender. Essentially, sorry, we live in a patriarchy and so did Tolkien. 
It places masculinity on this biological foundation, valuing genetic attributes like virility, libido, physical strength, particular heights, weights, muscle tones, skin color, body hair, and of course, genitalia. It values the repression of emotions, independence, competition, and physical force over the free expression of emotion or cooperation, community, and physical restraint. It associates women and femininity with weakness, subservience, and inferiority. It does not accept gender nonconformity and forms strict definitions of what is acceptable. It rejects homosexuality, trans and non-binary people who are feared and abhorred or are at best regarded as deluded or ill persons who do not realize the gender binary and cis heteronormativity are immutable biology and fact. It operates from a position of authority which is believed to be innate and essential and regards women, children, animals, and the natural resources of the world as, at best, subjects and dependents to steward and govern carefully, and at worst, serfs, slaves, and objects to be used at their discretion and disposal. This is the stereotypical masculinity associated with patriarchal cultures, which, as descendants of North American colonizers, us podcasters all live in. At its more extreme expressions, it is this masculinity, this hegemonic masculinity, that we know and will name here as toxic masculinity. The reason we're really emphasizing the attributes and features of toxic masculinity here is because it's the cosmic background radiation of our world and Tolkien's world, and it's important to name it as such. As evidenced by the rise of the manosphere, which includes various men's rights movements, incel culture, the trad wife or trad life cultural movements, all of which are perpetuated and monetized by figures like Andrew Tate, Jordan Peterson, Nick Fuentes, and yeah, Tucker Carlson on the internet or in media, and these groups and movements like the Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers, Gamergate, toxic hegemonic masculinity isn't receding or changing nearly as quickly as people think it is. Now, that's all very scary. And if you don't know who some of those people are or what those terms are, we'll include some links in the show notes. But keep that chamomile tea and whiskey handy because, oh boy. <laughs> I do want to recognize that things are absolutely changing for the better in a lot of ways. And as gender studies continues to evolve and the wider culture continues to interrogate the structures of society, different forms of masculinity are becoming more prominent or favored. Like, does anyone remember the whole metrosexual thing, the rise of the dad bod or the farmer's market dad look? But also things are changing and transforming in a highly reactionary way. Like, has anyone seen dude wipes or brogurt at the grocery store? Combined with the aforementioned movements and people and the rise in anti-trans and anti-choice legislation, the other efforts of Christian authoritarian patriarchy rising through our political and cultural spheres this toxic masculinity constitutes a very real threat to marginalized genders, races, and sexualities. Anyone who isn't a cis white man on so many levels, and it's still the dominant and most powerful masculinity working in our society today. Okay, but as a cis white man, <laughs> how am I going to know which wipes and other toiletries I can use if they're not black or navy blue or gray? Like, come on, <sighs> throw me a bone here. And if it doesn't, Tastes like eagle fangs or whatever. (laughs) You just go for the cheaper thing because the pink one is more expensive. True. Very true. Or the one that that has like the most rugged marketing 
image on it or whatever, or the most rugged. Yes, whatever wipes look like thing. they're the most rugged and uncomfortable are the ones exactly. that real men are using. The ones that are made of sandpaper. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. if, if there's any Dirty like Brit sandpaper. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the whole idea of the term brogurt. <laughs> the perfect image of toxic masculinity to me is brosé and yeah. brogurt. I was like, is there any more perfect image of fragile masculinity than brosé? <laughs> I I don't I don't know. <laughs> like my my dude, you don't want yogurt made by men. <laughs> no. You don't I don't think you <sighs> I think man yogurt has a different connotation. Yeah. <laughs> It's Ew. like that fucking meme, right? There's that meme about this person saw a yogurt container and it listed the names of the cows at the dairy. And this person was like, look at all of these female names. This is cis hetero bullshit and like female slavery or whatever. And Feminism has gone too far. Exactly. And dude was like, do you want yogurt made from bulls? <laughs> Woke culture has gone too far. Uh. Oh dear. <laughs> the thing about this is though that th- this form of masculinity, this really toxic masculinity is super fragile. Yeah. It's yeah. incredibly fragile, it's in- incredibly vulnerable and in because of that it's incredibly reactionary and people who are embroiled in this lash out a lot. Yeah, really to the point where men won't use like a pink toiletry or something like that or anything that even could vaguely be considered feminine. Yep. Exactly. And it's unfortunately, it's like you said, Grace, it's the cosmic background radiation, sometimes like outright radiation of our society today. And it it was the same for Tolkien as well. Yeah, it's not a new development. No. This is still the milieu that he was writing in. Yes. So that leads us to an important and quick tangent that we promise is needed for some of our discussion later. We know Tolkien's Christianity, his Catholicism, informed his work deeply, and it must be pointed out that many Christianities played a massive role in the rise of hegemonic masculinity and subsequently many toxic masculinities. This really can't be understated or glossed over. Many Christian worldviews, including the medieval Christianities that so fascinated Tolkien, are based on fundamental metaphysical hierarchy with God at the top of the universe and humans below him, but conveniently above the rest of the natural world. Many, many Christianities subordinate women to men due to the quote-unquote fact that God created man first and created woman from a part of man specifically to be a helper to him. God also instructed that man fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over every living thing on earth. That's Genesis 1 and 2. Hegemonic and toxic masculinity finds an ally in Christianity that not only accords men's superiority and power here in the world, but justifies it as literally God-ordained. This worldview is common to many modern Christianities as well, and essential for understanding the Christian hegemony in America. We will fill many, many more episodes with how we feel about this sort of worldview, about Christianity, medieval Christianity, Catholicism, modern Protestant Christianity and their complexities and intersections with Tolkien and his legendarium. But today we'll leave it there because the relationship between Christianity and hegemonic masculinity is very, very long, complex, and broad. 
If you are interested in a great book that explores toxic, hegemonic, militant masculinity in America and evangelical Christianities, we highly recommend Christian Kobe Dumez's book, Jesus and John Wayne, and her work at Religious Dispatches as well. Yes, sadly, we'll we'll leave it there. You can hear us yell about Christianity. <laughs> and will. You will. And will. It's yeah. coming. <laughs> at many, many opportunities in the future. Yeah, so to Tolkien, we can't, of course, know for certain how Tolkien's Catholicism informed his own understanding of his masculinity, though we can speculate. And we can also read his letter to his son, Michael, in 1941. It's uh, letter 43 in the letters of J.R.R. Tolkien. And we can cringe a bit because it seems that Tolkien indeed thought that women had a, quote, servient helpmeet instinct and their gift is to be receptive. Oh, God, this is real hard to read. <clears throat> yeah. Their gift is to be receptive, stimulated, fertilized, and many other matters than the physical by the male. Oh, thank you for clarifying that, J.R.R. Tolkien. That, that, all that. Oh, boy. Oh, it just, it hurts me to fucking read that. Hmm. And they are also, quote, instinctively when uncorrupt monogamous and that falling in love for, quote, an unspoiled natural young woman means that she wants to become the mother of the young man's children, even if that desire is by no means clear to her or explicit. Sure. Uh, Ronald, my dude. <laughs> Yikes. <laughs> I mean, so much of this letter uh, will go more into it in a minute reads to me like please don't knock anyone up while you're off at work <laughs> it really does <laughs> and i get that but also i in just hearing that right i'm like cool 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 cool, cool. very cool, cool very good yeah yeah <sighs> all right now let's hear what he thinks about men <laughs> <laughs> Quote, a young man does not really, as a rule, want friendship, as in quotation marks, with women, even if he says he does. Men are not monogamous. No good pretending. Men just ain't. Not by their animal nature. For a Christian man, there is no escape. Marriage may help to sanctify and direct to its proper object to sexual desires. Its grace may help him in the struggle, but the struggle remains. God, I really hated hearing my name in that line. (laughs) (laughs) Can I just say, I I, I am uh, taken aback that Tolkien would use ain't. And and even in an informal capacity. I felt very justified as a Texan. I was like, see? Ain't is proper grammar. It all works. Yeah. Oh, man. So that's... uh... (laughs) That's a letter that we just all read, and it's pretty cringy, but it also gives us some insight into how deeply Tolkien's faith informed his relationship with his wife for all that his affirmations about men and women and how falling in love isn't really a thing that can be attained in a fallen world were completely contrary to his own experience of falling in love at 18, bitterly agreeing to not see her for three years, and then getting engaged and married to her at 21 against everyone's wishes. Yeah, it's a long letter. 
those are just some uh, choice quotes that we pulled out because he goes into actually quite a long story about his experience and kind of how he was like, I actually did everything wrong in opposition to this advice that I've just given to you, young Michael. And it's kind of a fascinating letter to me because it, it reveals a lot of interesting things about Tolkien's thought processes and also what he thinks about his own experiences. I just have some thoughts that are just just bouncing through my mind right now on the topic of women and monogamy in mm-hmm. John Ronald Roll's worldview. Was not Edith engaged to another man at the point that she broke that engagement and then got engaged to John? She was, yes. Fascinating what interesting conclusions he's drawn from that. <laughs> well, okay, so there are two papers that kind of touch on this like wartime bride situation. And one of them is the one I was just referencing is called The Young Parish and the Old Linger Withering J.R.R. Tolkien on World War II by Janet Brennetcroft. And there's another paper that is in Perilous and Fair, and it is called At Home and Abroad, Eowyn's Twofold Figuring as War Bride and the Lord of the Rings by Melissa Smith. And it goes specifically into the heightened emotional stakes of a wartime relationship and how quickly things move. Mm. And I like that is so entwined with what he's talking about in this letter and also his own personal experience because he the letters written surrounding World War II, his experience was surrounding World War One. Like, yes, he loved Edith, but he was also under uh, an artificial timeline where if he wanted to do that, he had to pull the trigger. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Not to say that literally anything he wrote is okay, because all of that's real gross. <laughs> it's like, thanks, Jert. Thanks for your thoughts on how women are only meant to be like, bleh, like Breeding fertilized. Yeah. Yeah, that <laughs> is particularly egregious. <laughs> but like, I, I think that he is at this point looking back at his own experience with feeling like he had to plunge ahead with Edith and like like lock that down and get married because he's in this situation of war and he wanted to prevent his son from doing the same thing but did it in the most disgusting way possible. <laughs> it's also a fascinating contemporary resource from, you know, this era of history, the primary resource that shows us worldviews that were present at the time but i would also caution that this is when when we look at reading tolkien as a man of his own time or whatever part of that is recognizing that this worldview is not necessarily a um, standard or common one for that time or the mm-hmm. not the only dominant thing that people would have been thinking this is this is a bit out there even for his time yeah. Y'all have brought this up before, but keep in mind what has been released of Tolkien's writings is heavily curated. Yeah. If they decided to release this, but there are other things that they have decided not to release, Ooh, that boy. is concerning for the potential content that could be, you know, some of it could just be, oh, it's really banal and, and doesn't really have anything of value, but some of it could potentially be very damaging to, you know, to his legacy. And I think it's worthwhile for us to examine it on this level of this this highly critical level that it deserves because certainly there are a lot of people who are working in bad faith to use sort of the worst possible pieces 
and the worst possible interpretations of Tolkien's work and writings and letters in order to justify an even more extreme worldview. Yeah, so um, let's do the same thing, but opposite. Uh, <laughs> let's look at how Tolkien actually talks about masculinity in terms of Middle Earth. Um, we're going to look at a few characters and explore the masculinities that they enact and uphold and see how those characters subvert or uphold the patriarchal hierarchy that underlies Middle Earth and our primary world and uh, what kinds of masculinities they show us. And we're starting with Tim with a great example of someone who embodies the best of the worst, Haldarion. <laughs> This is a deep cut, you guys. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Toxic masculinity. Deep cut. <laughs> yeah. So the story, uh, Eldarion is a character in Eldarion and Erendis, the Mariner's Wife, which is from Unfinished Tales. I first read this um, only last year when we were kind of going through our Rings of Power book club, um, which everybody who was, was a part of at some point, where we were reading through all of Tolkien's Second Age materials in order to kind of, you know, give an idea of what we might see in Rings of Power. It is probably one of the most frustrating bits of Tolkien's writing that I have ever read um, mm -hmm. for a number of reasons. Uh, and I know it's, it, like I said, it's Unfinished Tales. Some people might not be familiar with it. So let me give sort of a quick recounting. This is a sort of mid-Second Age story. It starts with Tar Menoldur, who is the king of Numenor at the time. And his passion is studying the stars. He's kind of an astronomer. His son is named Anardil, but ultimately he becomes Aldarian when he becomes king later. Spoiler alert. So we'll just call him Aldarian also because that's in the fucking title. Aldarian is one of these like sort of mariner sailor archetypes that just feels compelled to sail the seas. And his dad doesn't like this because, you know, he wants him to be an astronomer or whatever, like, him, you know, family business kind of thing. He also wants him to stay in the country because he's going to be the king. <laughs> yeah, stay on Numenor rather than, you know, vaunting off to far the far reaches of, of Middle-earth or whatever. When Aldarion gets older, he starts making voyages from Numenor to Middle-earth by boat, obviously, and founds like this guild of venturers. He eventually meets this woman, Arendis, who is not highborn, so she is not of the line of Elros. And so there's a big disparity in between their lifespans, which plays into some tension in between in their relationship. and also almost puts an interracial kind of aspect into the, the dynamic of their relationship as well. Mm -hmm. And uh, he's attracted to her, eventually pursues her. Arendis is like, nah, bro, it's pretty fucking obvious your first love is the sea and that I'd just like be playing second fiddle the whole time, which is exactly what fucking ends up happening. Eventually, Aldarian wears her down after some like pretty creepy stalker behavior, which goes right into that like toxic masculinity, like I'm owed relationship sex kind of love and makes a bunch of hollow promises to her that you know he's going to spend less time at sea and spend more time with her Arendis finally agrees to get engaged to Aldarion and after a long engagement they finally get married but this whole time Aldarion is constantly fucking off with his crew for years at a time on these long voyages leaving Arendis alone to basically just like stew and pine for him even after they have a daughter and Kalame Aldarion continues to go on these years-long trips with his bros. Arendis finally gets sick of this bullshit and takes her daughter back to the part of Numenor uh, where she grew up, which is more in the interior because she wants to be away from the sea because it just reminds her of her absent husband. 
And she doesn't tell Aldarian about this. He gets back from one of these voyages and finds their house empty. He eventually finds where Arendus has gone back to and is living now. And she basically tells him to get fucked. And she like raises Ancalame entirely surrounded by women. Like all the handmaids and, and the house servants, which is another whole thing, are all female. And you know, she's entirely trying to make sure that Ancalame is like shielded from male energy in her upbringing. Mm. Then there's finally this moment that's meant to be redeeming somehow for Aldarion, where actually the voyage he returns and he finds that uh, Arendus has taken Ancalame away. He brings a letter to his father, Tarmaneldur, a letter from Gilgalad, which reveals that Aldarion has, over these many years and these many voyages, has been secretly forging this alliance with the elves of Linden, and he's established this outpost of Vinyalande. Uh, at the mouth of a river that's helped to defend against sort of Sauron's rising forces that have been you know, amassing throughout the Second Age. And Gilgalad asks for further help from Numenor. So that's kind of where Tolkien stopped writing. Basically, from there, Minoldur says, I'm too old for this shit. I don't know what to do. And he abdicates the throne and Eldarion takes over. Mm. But there are some notes, you know, for the rest of the story that indicate that Arendus just became like more and more of a misinterest. And can you really fucking blame her at this point? And <laughs> passed all of this on to her daughter. And eventually she just gets so forlorn and her longing for her absent husband. She just walks into the port, like walks into the sea after him distraught and just fucking drowns. Jeez. So <laughs> that's the general gist of Altarion and Arendus. To be honest, it does have some nice bits to it, some bits of lore. It's the origin of where the kings and queens of men in Middle-earth wear like a white jewel on their brow as a circlet rather than a crown. And that's ultimately what Aragorn wears when he becomes king. So that's kind of cool. But like, we're not here to talk about that. We're here to talk about the way masculinity is portrayed in this story. And it is not great. <laughs> so just right from the outset, Aldarion's relationship with his father, Maneldur, has some toxicity to it on both sides because Maneldur is kind of pressuring Aldarion to follow on in the family business. You know, this like traditionalism, you know, you need to carry on our, our family's honor or whatever. But Aldarion just wants to kind of like shirk off his responsibility. He wants to sail around the world, be like a free spirit at the start. That just always reminds me of Andy Bernard from The Office, like the latter seasons where he just like fucking takes off on his family's yacht and shirks all his actual responsibilities right down to leaving his girlfriend, leaving Aaron behind because he's got to go on this fucking ill-advised journey to find himself or whatever. Sheesh. <laughs> and, and so Aldarian really comes across to me as an example of that like rugged individualism that can become part of, of a toxic masculinity. You know, this sort of mariner sailor kind of archetype that has this just compulsion or whatever some need to sail the seas and explore the world by boat so i i think that's really interesting for this to be such like a hetero view of toxic masculinity because like when you think about sailors in the navy you generally <laughs> don't think about hetero people <laughs> i was gonna say it sounds like he's you know going off for years and years with his bros, bros yeah. <laughs> on a boat yeah just sometimes it's really hot and they have to take their shirts off and yeah. and, and you know the, the sea spray and the <laughs> but the thing yeah. is there's a long history of in these sort of like single gender cultural 
spaces that are like for men only, the sailors and etc. There's a long history of misogyny. Yeah. That is promoted as a way to be able to preserve that way of life that is mm-hmm. that is, that is promoted as a way to be able to to preserve that culture because the dominant societal culture also wants to to take that down. And those are things that you know, the men's rights activists of today absolutely tap into in order to argue that those sort of monocultures should exist mm. and how they should be created. Yeah, I mean, that's what ended up being, you know, like men, men's only clubs and, and bars and, you know, country clubs and that sort of thing. It's all the same mm-hmm. sort of vibe, right? It's we need to have this place where we can be men and, you know, ladies can't come in and pollute you know, our, our masculinity, our, our dude space or whatever. <laughs> One of the things that's truly fascinating about this story is that Tolkien is critical of that sort of like single gendered culture, but only for the ladies. It is only the mm-hmm. women's household that is critiqued in this. Mm. And the dudes are dudes off on the ships are like, no, no, they're the good guys. That 100% doesn't have any placement in his real life at all, does it? Inklings. <laughs> not not at all. GCBS, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. Uh, Oxford. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, that is at least one area where Tolkien seemed to be trying to make a difference was in opening up Oxford to mm-hmm. more more female scholars. Still yeah. still a lot of a lot of male only spaces. Should we talk about that hegemonic culture? Yeah. Yeah. So I think Tolkien like sort of intended Aldarion to be read as like this wanderlust hero that, you know, was just a little removed and, and, you know, a little cold and stoic. And so he couldn't open up to his wife or whatever. Honestly, he comes off to me just kind of like a privileged asshole. <laughs> <laughs> and at the start of this, Aldarion's framed as like very you know irresponsible because we don't know that he's forging this alliance with the elves. And Tolkien, as the author, purposefully keeps this information from the reader until such time as he gives the letter to to Maneldur from Gilgalad. But even when we find out about that, it still reads to me as reckless and irresponsible because he's been going on these long, often dangerous journeys with just himself and his crew instead of just having a fucking conversation with his father, asking him for a little more help and explaining why what he's doing is important, you know? Sauron's forces are are rising again. We should go help the elves because if they get past the elves, Numenor is next kind of thing, right? And it's just that typical, you know, men will do anything to avoid having a meaningful discussion with each other. It's just like that prideful (laughs) unwillingness to ask others for any sort of assistance whatsoever. Like, I can do this. I'm the only one that can take this on, take this challenge on sort of thing. The lengths that men in our society today will go to to avoid therapy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the thing is, too, if it was just Eldarion on his own fucking off on the sea, if he had like a little boat, and he was just taking these voyages, I wouldn't have such a problem with it. But he's also risking the lives of the crew, which, you know, some of them are probably friends of his and enjoy the have the same, you know, mariner spirit or whatever that he does but some of them are just duty bound to him like these are people you know he's he's high born he is heir to the throne he has people that have to do what he says kind of thing and for him to just continue to go off on these missions on his own rather than asking for more help just is not i mean yeah it's toxic it is really interesting to think about all darion in 
comparison with Arendelle because they're very similar characters mm-hmm. and yet mm-hmm. their relationships with other people are very different. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. And and I mean let's talk about Arendus because the the title of the story is the Mariner's Wife. There's obviously the, the primary focus of the story, even though kind of the, all the action and the larger lore is happening around Eldarion. Arendus is supposed to be the character, I guess, that we're more sympathetic to. I'm not. I'm more sympathetic to her, but I don't think that's the way she's written. And Eldarion just treats Arendus like absolute garbage. She like she has no feelings of her own, and once he's like won her by getting her to agree to marry him. He treats her more like a possession than a person. He expects her just to wait for him forever because you know he's got quote unquote important things to do that he's the only one that can possibly do them. But the problem is he never even communicates that much with her. Like as far as she knows, he's just going off on these adventures for fun because he has this passion to explore the sea. And Melanie Rawls wrote about this in The Feminine Principle on Tolkien, which is also in Perilous and Fair. You're going to get a lot of Perilous and Fair quotes this episode because we're talking about gender roles. <laughs> she writes, Eldarion is very masculine, a wandering sailor and builder of ships. Arendus is very feminine in her attachment to her home. Though their love is great, they never reach a balance or a blend of masculine and feminine characteristics. They become estranged. Significantly, Eldarion becomes more outer-directed, voyaging further and longer often behaving rashly and ever more resistant to any moderating influences of counsel. Arendus withdraws into her home and creates an all-female household wherein she attempts to confine their daughter. She turns inward, nursing her grievances and pride. Mm. I don't necessarily agree 100% with the way that Rawls characterizes Arendus there. It seems a little off-base, but I think she's got Aldarian pegged. Yeah. <laughs> And Aldarian just refuses to accept any blame for his estrangement from Arendus. He sort of entertains the notion once or twice, like Tolkien writes a little bit of internal sort of monologue for him. But he always ends up telling himself that, oh, it's just that she's like a cold, unfeeling woman, or she's just upset because her lifespan is, sh- is shorter than his. Because, yeah, that makes fucking sense. Like, these years don't mean as much to you as they do to, you know, this quote-unquote, low-born woman who's not going to live as long. And there's just no self-awareness or introspection whatsoever. This just all reminded me a lot of, like, the Principal Skinner meme. Like, could I be the problem in this relationship? Because I keep leaving my wife alone for years while I sail around on these seemingly pointless voyages? No. It's the woman who's wrong. Jeez. <laughs> and Arendus really has a, a really good line that I picked out when I was reading through this the first time that I think sums up a lot of toxic male behavior. She says that men, quote, turn their play into great matters and great matters into play. So think of like the toxic male figures that become so obsessed with achieving like this ideal maleness, like fucking Andrew Tate, you know, former MMA fighter and that sort of thing. Or, you know, these, these guys that are just obsessed with peak masculinity whether it's physical or psychological or whatever or you know relationship based you know dominance over women all that sort of stuff or the ones who get like so worked up over depictions of men in media like this is play that men are becoming more feminized or whatever in depictions of media or gaming or whatever you know they they always want to see men depicted as these like super alpha male kind of types And then on the flip side, there's like the alphas, quote unquote, that look at things like the stock market or politics or things that like 
can and do have really huge, far-reaching impacts, especially on marginalized groups of people. These are people that see those areas as games to be won. You know, mm. They want to game the system. They want power for the sake of power. They just want to win the money. They don't care what the results are, you know, what, what impact it has. That's turning great matters into play. Mm. So honestly, I think we could probably spend a while talking about the depiction of women and femininity in Eldarion and Arendis as well, but that's not the topic of this episode. Maybe we'll do that another time. The other thing I want to touch on with Eldarion is kind of the idea of the masculine ideal of like dominance over nature, like subjugating nature to your will. Environmental stewardship is a common theme in Tolkien's Legendarium. It comes up a lot and it's often associated with kind of general concepts of good or evil. So good people steward the environment and live in harmony with it, whereas evil people tend to exploit the land and kind of bend the environment to their will. Aldarion deforests big chunks of Numenor to make his ships, but Tolkien makes a note of saying that he doesn't replant these forests, so he's not as respectful as nature. There are other cases where there are specific mentions in Numenor of people, you know, when they do cut down trees, they replant those forests to make sure that they grow for future generations. Mm. Edith Crow writes about this in Power in Arda, Sources, Uses, and Misuses, also in Perilous and Fair. Quote, it is Arendus who values the trees for themselves in their natural state, and Aldarion who is more concerned with their domestication for human use. And there's also a case where Aldarion is giving a sapling by the Eldar that they, the Eldar treasure it for its beauty, and immediately his thought is, there's going to be a great wood for making ships with. I don't know why he's southern now. <laughs> yeah, why southern? Why not like Boston or I don't know. something? He's, you know, he's from South Numenor. Sure. <laughs> yeah, so that's Eldarion, maybe pinnacle in the Tolkien world of toxic masculinity. Yeah. Can't discuss his feelings. Yeah, man. That piece about his use of the environment, where he he sees the trees as only resources to be to be mm-hmm. used for his own ends, I feel like that's such an important part of what we were talking about earlier with the stuff from from Genesis about you know the dominion over Earth and over overall living things in it. I feel like that's such an important part of toxic masculinity to me is the perception of other beings and the world as simply objects to to be used and not regarded as simply for their own sake. Yeah, lesser. And as the resident animist and hippie dirt-worshipping weirdo, like that's always what sticks out to me in Tolkien is how different people live and use their environment. And... Moving on. Yeah. All right. I'm going to talk about my boy Faramir. He is my favorite character. At least my favorite character in The Lord of the Rings. And Faramir is an interesting character because he is uh, Tolkien's author insert. Tolkien explicitly says this in letters. It's a note on page uh, 232. And it is, quote, as far as any character is like me, it is Faramir, except that I lack what all my characters possess, courage. Mm. So Tolkien also gave Faramir a dream that famously haunted him of the ineluctable wave that destroyed Numenor. He gives that dream to Faramir to further mesh 
himself and Faramir together. And uh, John Rosegrant, in his new book, Tolkien Enchantment and Loss, says that Tolkien attributed his own trauma reactions to his time in World War I to Faramir, that his physical wounds weren't the main ones he suffered from. It was the loss of love that happened throughout that war that like really wounded him. And yeah. that's definitely something that happened with Tolkien. Like when you read the foreword to the Lord of the Rings, uh, he talks of the TCBS. He's saying that the Lord of the Rings is not an allegory for World War II, but in saying that he talks of the TCBS in terms of by the end of World War I, all my friends were dead. And in a lot of ways, Faramir kind of goes through a very similar thing when he awakens after battle. His entire family's dead at that point. His mother <sighs> dies when he's five. His brother dies on a journey that Faramir should have gone on, but he didn't because of his dad. We'll get back to that in a second. And then his dad suicides himself. So, like, it's everyone's dead and he's having to rebuild from scratch. And we have spoken already about Melanie Rawls, The Feminine Principle in Tolkien. That's something that's very important here. She talks at length about Faramir. So her central thought here is that if you want to achieve good in Middle-earth, you have to embody both feminine and masculine characteristics and she identifies those as feminine characteristics are understanding and inwardly facing and masculine characteristics are power-based and outwardly facing mm. and faramir is a pretty balanced character this is from appendix a it says quote he reads the hearts of men as shrewdly as his father but what he read moved him sooner to pity than scorn. He was gentle and bearing and a lover of lore and music. And therefore, by any in those days, his courage was judged less than his brother's. But it was not so, except that he did not seek glory and danger without a purpose. Mm -hmm. And that's really exemplified in the famous quote, I do not love the bright sword for its sharpness, nor the arrow for its swiftness, nor the warrior for his glory. I love only that which they defend. So Faramir is, he has a type of soft masculinity here. Like he is stepping into a role that he has to step into because Boromir is no longer there. They need a military captain, but that's not where his true desire lies. He is, as Denethor said, he's a wizard's pupil. Like what he wants to do is he's, he's bookish, he's gentle, he wants to steward the land and in every sense he doesn't want to go to war but he will do that if he has to because he has that nobility of wanting to protect what is his to protect and it is that like understanding and empathy that Faramir has that makes his relationship with Eowyn possible like he has insight that other characters don't because as problematic as this is, the blood of Numenor runs nearly true in him. So he can understand more than the face value of things. So when he meets Frodo and Frodo has the ring and he knows that if he sees the ring, shit's going to go bad because he can see what 
probably tempted Boromir. And he's mm-hmm. kind of the same way with Eowyn, that he sees Eowyn and the things that she lacks and knows how to help her through that. He sees in Eowyn someone who's close to his brother mm-hmm. and who needs love in the same way that he does. Yeah. He, in this instance, being Faramir, not Boromir. Boromir didn't give a fuck about love. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> that, so that that's fucking canon my dude <laughs> in terms of Boromir also in appendix A he is said to be a man after the sword of King Erner of old taking no wife and delighting chiefly in arms fearless and strong but caring little for lore save the tales of old battles and often when people talk about Faramir and the type of masculinity he shows, they talk about him in comparison with Boromir. Makes sense, right? They're they're essentially opposites. Boromir is the warrior. Faramir is the bookish second son who probably would have gone into the priesthood if he wasn't part of a noble family and the spare. But I think a better comparison there is uh, Denethor. Because Denethor and Faramir are alike in a way that Denethor and Boromir aren't. Gandalf says of Denethor, he is not of other men of this time, Pippin, and whatever his descent from father to son, by some chance the blood of Westerness runs nearly true in him, as it does in his other son, Faramir, yet did not in Boromir who he loved best. He has long sight, he can perceive, if he bends his will thither, much of what is passing in the minds of men, even those that dwell far off, it is difficult to deceive him and dangerous to try. I think that Denethor is like a negative expression of the same kind of masculinity that Faramir has. Denethor covets mm-hmm. Boromir for being the alpha Chad, because <laughs> that's what he wants to be. <laughs> <laughs> and he looks down upon Faramir as being a fellow Omega. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> or being a beta cuck soy boy Faramir. I was not expecting the, the word Omega. Sorry. <laughs> Alicia has just inspired so much fanfic. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, God. Omega versus Faramir. <laughs> No, please, no. no. <laughs> I, I am doing an AO3 tag search right now. Oh, no, no, no. I won't do that to you. <laughs> Maybe. Well, going back to um, Melanie Rawls, she would probably classify what happens to Denethor as like a negative feminine expression. So as Denethor becomes more withdrawn, he turns more and more and more inward. And as Faramir heals, Faramir turns more and more and more outward. Denethor then Mm -hmm. succumbs to despair and Faramir goes on to have a successful relationship, become the Prince of Athelion, fix all of that land, going back to environmental stewardship. So I think Faramir is the, the most balanced of the masculine characters. And like what gives him balance is that he is uh, emotionally available in a way that is often frowned upon in terms of you know, the mores of toxic masculinity. You're supposed to be stoic, mm-hmm. as Tim was talking mm-hmm. about earlier. And just self-aware, right? It's, yeah. it's you know, having mm-hmm. that self-awareness to know 
yes, I'm not perfect. And if I see the ring, it will tempt me. I need to not, like, I know that you have it, but I can't see it. That sort of thing is, is there's so much in just that, that decision. And a lot of people really focus on the thing where he says, if he saw the ring on the side of the road, he wouldn't touch it because he vowed not to. And how that is Mm. outside the realm of like mortal temptation but that that he does say that but then he also has the presence of mind to be like no keep it hidden i don't want to see it i don't want to fall like my brother armir would totally see a therapist like weekly yeah yeah (laughs) and he should denethor fucked him up um (laughs) yeah he should be in like family therapy with denethor in particular there's no way boromir would ever go no boromir would have to be dragged there well, Boromir did nothing wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so th- this is obviously, I'm just talking about book depiction of Faramir because the movie depiction of Faramir's character assassination, in my opinion. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that was how really feel. Because uh, like, Faramir as a character in the movies is just daddy issues. He is daddy issues, the character. And there's so much more to him than that. It's not a very compelling character because, like, movie Faramir is, I want daddy to love me. Daddy doesn't love me. Daddy loves Boromir. Dot, dot, dot. Oh, here's a hobbit with something that daddy would really like for me to bring to him. Let me take him the hobbit. (laughs) Dot, dot, dot. Oh, wait, I fucked up. Dot, dot, dot. Holding hands with Eowyn. (laughs) (laughs) There's so much more in the book there that's just not in the movie. And without mm-hmm. it, it, it doesn't make him a very compelling character. Mm. You miss out on so much of his introspection. Yeah. And like, yeah. that's where he really shines as a character. And like getting the quiet courtship of Eowyn is such a healing respite in the middle of so much battle. Yeah. It does a similar job to what in the movies the Intmoot does, but in a much less frustrating way. Mm-hmm. Like you, you slow down, you get to take a breath, but you also get to witness like the blossoming of this love of two broken characters who fill in each other's gaps in a very beautiful way. Yeah, we're we're definitely going to do an episode on those two. And I, I feel like we could do an episode on adaptation of different characters and how that transforms their portrayals of different masculinities and kind of how we we perceive them for sure and yeah we can go into a whole dissection of Faramir, Ormir, and Denethor like their dynamic would make a really compelling series (laughs) about like family you know like a succession kind of series or something or like you know some kind of wild like or even like the Sopranos or something where it's just all about like the family dynamic of these men trying to navigate navigate their repressed feelings. Yeah, in some cases, trying to outman each other in in a weird way and yeah. being ashamed about it. Yeah, I will say, in the terms of the adaptation, they don't actually change the quality of the masculinity in Boromir, mm-hmm. Faramir, or Denethor. They just tear it down so much you lose nuance. You know, unlike Aragorn. <laughs> yeah they, they crank it up or make it very obvious but yeah well let's talk about Aragorn since we have mentioned him so 
when I Google Aragorn and masculinity or toxic masculinity, it's really fascinating to me that I see so many articles and video essays pop up that describe and argue that Aragorn is actually like the paragon of positive, non-toxic masculinity. This is especially true, I think, of the adapted Aragorn, heretofore known as uh, Vigo Aragorn, of the Peter Jackson films. And again, I feel like we, got, we could honestly do an entire episode about Aragorn and Faramir in adaptation as, you know, sort of reflections of our slowly evolving and changing hegemonic masculinity to one that is gentler and more introspective, among other things. But I have to say, to be honest, that I think that Aragorn, to paraphrase Grace when we were talking about this episode, Aragorn is kind of the best sort of man that you could ask for in a really shitty patriarchal system. And he fails because he does not interrogate that shitty patriarchal system. (laughs) Like, for all of Aragorn's positive qualities, he embodies what Hilary Wheaton in her dissertation about masculinity in Lord of the Rings, which, side note, is actually a really interesting paper and is also explores slash fanfiction on its impact on um, masculinities in Lord of the Rings. She calls um, what I think Aragorn embodies the fraternal masculine or fraternal patriarchy. That is, Aragorn's masculinity and the rising hegemonic masculinity of Middle-earth itself that will be established by Aragorn as he takes the throne and initiates the dominion of men is one that elevates fellowship, is gentler, more in tune with their emotions and nature. It's more vulnerable and open to alternate ways of thinking than just authoritative male sort of logic and independence. Unfortunately, it is still a masculinity that upholds and supports a patriarchal culture where men, both in terms of gender and race, have dominion. So she cites other scholars on masculinities, R.W. Connell and David Bookbinder in his in this construction of fraternal patriarchy. And she also cites especially John Miller, who's, again, another side note, whose article Alternative Masculinities and the Dominion of Men in the Lord of the Rings, which I think would have been perfect for this episode, but I could not get my hands on. It's it's cited in a couple of places, including an article that John Miller wrote in Mythlore called Mapping Gender in Middle-Earth. He kind of explains a little bit more about how the dominion of men is not just about the race of men ascending, but is also about a new masculinity and a new patriarchy, which replaces the alternative masculinities that Tolkien shows us in Middle-Earth with the other races like the Hobbits, the Ents, and especially the Elves which I find a really fascinating idea and maybe will be another episode, but I just wanted to mention it really, really briefly and before I kind of move on, because I, I think that the, the term fraternal masculinity is like the perfect sort of term for Aragorn's sort of brand of masculinity. So when talking about Aragorn, I will try also to kind of mostly stick to book Aragorn. It's sort of inevitable that Vigo Aragorns will come through because I feel like I'm kind of always comparing him with book Aragorn. 
because I've said it before and I, I'll say it again, I would die for Vigo Aragorn and would renounce all of my like anarchist, communist, leftist leanings for Vigo Aragorn. But a lot of the times I really want to slap Book Aragorn like upside the head. <laughs> so I think like the biggest sort of attribute of this fraternal masculinity of Aragorn is his, of course, like his instinct to heal. He wants to protect and preserve life from treating Frodo of the Morgul wound. And after he is stabbed in Moria, he literally saves Eowyn and Faramir and countless other soldiers in Minas Tirith. He's literally recognized first as a healer. And it is that aspect that leads the people of Minas Tirith to begin to acknowledge him as a king. The famous quote being from Eorith, the hands of a king are the hands of a healer. He also prioritizes fellowship and cooperation and establishing friendships. I feel like he knows basically everybody important in Middle-earth. He forms relationships with the other kingdoms of Middle-earth and makes peace with Harad and the Easterlings. He makes the Shire officially off-limits and self-governing when he ascends to the throne. This fellowship and this cooperation like, comes through so strongly in his loyalty to his friends. He not only is so loyal to them, he, he works on those friendships. You know, like He finds time to write poetry with Bilbo in Rivendell after a long journey with Frodo. He finds the time to have a pipeful and smoke with Merry and Pippin after a really kind of horrific battle, basically. And... He's really committed, especially with the hobbits, he's committed to serving and protecting those who are physically smaller or weaker than him. He spends years helping to protect the Shire. And I, I feel like this also is sort of reflected in, in that moment at the, the end of the Return of the King when he is crowned king. He sort of recognizes that his kingship was not solely his own doing his kneeling down to Sam and Frodo after they destroyed the ring. He has Frodo and Gandalf crown him. He explicitly says, me coming into this inheritance of mine was the labor of so many others, not, not just me. And speaking of becoming the king, like he didn't have to do decades and decades of wandering the earth, meeting other cultures, learning other languages meeting other people and forging friendships with other people. He didn't have to do that to establish a claim to his kingship, right? He basically did what I've been calling a, a decades-long internship to be a good king. And he didn't have to do that, but he did. He doesn't command others to do things that he wouldn't, like walk the paths of the dead or ride to Mordor. And he wouldn't even command an army of the dead to come with him up the river to help save Minas Tirith. He honors his word and releases them of their oath after the, the liberation of Pelargir. Personally, I think that it, this was handled better in the movie because it robs a lot of drama. <laughs> and <laughs> it's sort of like, well, well, wait, you didn't really fulfill the oath to uh, whatever. That's fine. Whatever. He kept his word. He said that he would release them. That's a pretty honorable thing, I think. And lastly, like he he shows his emotions 
openly, like fairly often, he is unafraid to express his grief and his doubt, like the anguish that he feels at the breaking of the fellowship and the decision that he has to make and openly expresses to everybody else that to like Les and Glenn Gimli and who are left over how hard of a decision this is for him. He ultimately decides to go after Marion Pippin again, that, that loyalty coming through, but in a lot of ways, he's unafraid to show kind of what he's going through and what he's thinking about to his loyal friends and of course, I feel like the the beautiful image of the best of Aragorn's fraternal masculinity, I think, is that beautiful, gentle kiss on Formir's brow and him weeping over Formir, holding his hand when he passes away. I feel like that's like just such a, a lovely image of this sort of fraternal fellowship masculinity that Aragorn embodies. And all that's to kind of butter everybody up and be sort of like, you know, <laughs> these are a lot of the points that get covered in a lot of these essays and video essays about Aragorn being a, an antidote to toxic masculinity. I want to kind of push back at that a little bit because for all of these beautiful, positive qualities, Aragorn still fails in a lot of ways to to truly be a feminist <laughs> and somebody who wants to elevate other genders and other races to an equal status with men. He is often fairly condescending to other women. I'm thinking of the moment with uh, Yorith in the Houses of Healing, where he also has kind of an asshole sort of streak when it comes to joking around with his pals. There's a the moment in The Prancing Pony when he is speaking to the hobbits and trying to convince them he is who he is and that he wants to help them, he kind of confronts Sam and says, if I had killed the real Strider, I could kill you, and I could have killed you already without so much talk. If I was after the ring, I could have it now. And he kind of makes a really intimidating and kind of frightens the hobbits sort of like into silence. And then he says... JK, I am the real Strider. <laughs> and he kind of does this again way later on to Aragond when he is king. He sort of confronts him about, because you defied an order of the Citadel of the Guard, you must be exiled from Minas Tirith. And this shocks poor Baragond into just despair. And then he says, JK, that's because you're going to Athelion with your best bro, Prince Faramir. Isn't that great? And it's kind of like, that's that was kind of unnecessary. You didn't have to do that. <laughs> yeah, a split second of I'm going to let your child starve is too much. Yeah, yeah it's like, it's kind of like, wow, dude, where? Okay, anyway. You can see that like he's got a little bit of that like power drunkness to him kind of thing. Yeah. Right? Like there are definitely times where you can see that he, you know, he has a little bit of fun having authority over others. And it's a little bit too much at the expense of the the people with him, you know, who mm -hmm. are ostensibly have lower status and overpowered by him. You know, mm -hmm. I feel like it's a little too much punching down there, Aragorn. Yeah. He also in Lothlorien, when he is receiving gifts from Galadriel, he says, what praise could I say more of Galadriel, a lady of Lorien, of whom were sprung 
Calibrian and Arwen Evenstar. What praise could I say more? What praise could be greater than that? And I'm kind of like, wait, you just told Galadriel, one of the like most powerful beings in Middle-earth, that her greatest contribution to him was birthing somebody? Like, what? I don't... I'm not convinced here, buddy. I don't think that that's as high praise as you think it is. <laughs> thanks for making my girlfriend. Thanks for making my girl. Thanks for being a mom, <laughs> because that's the most important thing you've done. Yeah. Yeah. It's there's kind of countless moments in the rest of Lord of the Rings where he kind of gets into his speechifying mode where he says, I am the heir of Isildur, and I'm coming into my own, and the sword of Elendil will come to Minas Tirith, and, you know, like the, I am the heir of Elendil, and I'm the heir of Isildur. And it reveals something about Aragorn, which I, because of my politics, I, I don't enjoy, because he never really questions him deserving the kingship, or he never kind of questions the idea that that he shouldn't be king. And obviously, that's kind of a greater problem with Middle-earth than just Aragorn. And just monarchy in general, really. Mm. Yeah, and patriarchy. And it's just kind of like, eh. So I, that's, that's kind of a bigger topic. But I, I find that for all of the wonderful qualities of this fraternal masculinity that Aragorn embodies, he is still committed to patriarchy. His, his masculinity is something that supports the literal dominion of, of men. And it's, it's not just, again, it's not just a race thing. It's, it's the dominion of men over, over everything in Middle-earth. We talk about how he, he grants the Shire to be self-governing. He grants the slaves of Mordor their own land. He grants Rohan to be a self-governing, independent country. However, the Shire still is a, ostensibly a part of the kingdom. He still has dominion over the entirety of, of Middle-earth. And that's never questioned. That's always an assumption that everyone is very cool and okay In with. In fact, when he, he, he stops at the boundary of the Shire and won't cross into it and holds up to his own bargains and everything, and that is lovely and wonderful on an individual level, but it always strikes for me that that is a system that works for one man's lifetime. And it is not a sustainable system. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's not constructing anything. Yeah. And you kind of have to wonder, like, what's Eldarion, his son? What, what kind of man is he going to grow up into? At the very best, he might benefit from, you know, the wisdom of his, of his mother and the wonderful cooperation and community that Aragorn has fostered. He might also turn out to be like so many monarchs in our primary world who have grown up in peace and prosperity. They might turn out to be absolute shitheads and (laughs) and tank the, (laughs) yeah, and tank the, uh, all the hard work that their fathers did in managing and creating the privilege and peace that they enjoy. So yeah, all of this is to say, I, again, I would die for Vigo Aragorn. And (laughs) I think that this fraternal masculinity is something that can be really positive, especially as something to aspire to 
far more than a lot of the masculinities that are presented by, say, Aldarian or, or Denethor or people in our primary world. But I kind of can't get past that Aragorn still enjoys the patriarchy and still enjoys having power. And that's something that doesn't sit well with me. Listen, as someone who had a poster, more than one poster, of Vigo Aragorn on her ceiling growing up, all right, I am here with you for Vigo Aragorn. There are some key differences between, you know, the the movie adaptation Aragorn and book Aragorn, one being, you know, uh, book Aragorn would not have a beard. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that, as that much as I'm joking about so much that, <laughs> <laughs> right? Like there, there are distinctions that were made in the adaptation and there's actually a serious point to that. Like the whole very troubling, like blood purity thing that Tolkien goes into in terms of, you know, the lines of Numenorean Kings and all of that. Aragorn is situated as someone who is the best possible version at that time of the system that is being enacted that continues on from the system that Aldarion, this terrible example of toxic masculinity, is enacting and mm-hmm. continues on in Tolkien's estimation to the primary world today. That's the conceit, right? That it becomes this primary world, which is also suffering so much with toxic masculinity and toxic patriarchal structures. And Aragorn is situated right in the middle of that. Yeah. He's meant to embody sort of like the best of of men and to a degree elves, like his being raised by elves, I think makes a big difference that access to the masculinities that are offered by by elves, I think, has really informed Aragorn's character to a really important degree. And I, I think that him being sort of like the the middle of this, like like the hinge on which this rests and the point from which the dominion of men is is guaranteed. Uh, it's a yes and sort of yeah. sort of existence where it's like, yes, it's true, and he's a pretty good king. He's still a king, mm-hmm. <laughs> and that that's great. It's good to be king. <laughs> it's not always great to be the guy serving the king. Yeah, I, I do want to just bring up in terms of the adaptation. One change they made in that adaptation that I think went the farthest to make Aragorn more palatable, specifically for a left-leaning audience, and that's his reluctance to take Mm -hmm. up the scepter. Exactly. Exactly. It's it's so important. And for as much as like right-wing people really want to glom onto this movie as being the end-all be-all of monarchy and, you know, all of that loaded bullshit. He didn't want to be fucking king. All he wanted to do was to just fuck Arwen in peace. But he, <laughs> the only way to do that was to become king. <laughs> yep. Yep. Which is like, it's a plot point in the book too, but it's so much less because he has all of this yes. other shit. A yeah. long way to yeah. go for a piece of tail. It's a piece in the adaptation where you can see the line through to where it was adapted out of the books and where it comes from and ties back in. But the treatment within the adaptation makes a tremendous difference. It really does. It 
plays into the stereotype of like the people who should be, you know, in leadership are always the ones who don't want to be in leadership. And it allows us to see these moments that kind of get passed over so often in the book where we can see him wrestling and making hard decisions and expressing how much doubt he has about those decisions. We can really see it in on the screen really, really well. And we can see how that kind of endears him to everybody else around him. And I, I feel like, you know, again, in this, this is present in the book because again, he makes a lot of friends and a lot of people say openly, like, I love him and, you know, I, I will follow him and men want to be him, women want to be with him sort of thing. <laughs> and it, it's so much more palatable in the film because you can kind of see him not only like getting grubby and dirty and bloodied up with his friends around him, you can, yeah, Ugh, so hot. Dirty Vigo is the best. Dirty Vigo is the best. <laughs> you can kind of see him work through some of his insecurities and his sort of wrestling with kind of like not his ultimate goal of becoming king, but what's the next right thing to do here? What's the next right thing for me to do to protect my friends? What's the next right thing for me to do to protect these people? And that makes it so much more appealing than just straight up, I'm going to be the king. This is my duty. This is my birthright. Yeah. Yeah. That point you made about people who desire power not being the people who should have power, I think hits differently than it would have in Tolkien's time. That's one of those situations where if it had been adapted the way Tolkien actually wrote it in the early 2000s, it wouldn't have hit well in a post-Thatcher, post-Reagan, uh, in the middle of a George W. Bush kind of world. Big time. Yeah, I can't even, well, I guess we'll, we might start thinking about it with the whole new deal that are happening around movies, but I, I can't imagine how it would hit now post the 45th president, post Charlottesville, post so many other things occurring in this world. So it's pretty sobering to think about. And I think, yeah, you're you're right that we're going to have to be having those conversations and thoughts in the news of new adaptations, considering who is in charge of Warner Brothers Discovery at this point in time, and that David Zaslav is the most disproportionately compensated CEO in the United States. He <laughs> has all kinds of, like, I could go on a soapbox for about a 10-minute rant on this man's behavior. And I will spare all of our listeners that today, but you can always find me about it. <laughs> Another episode. Yeah. Just like this one Grace. guy in particular. <laughs> Grace gets real mad at David Zaslav. Okay. Like, this there's all kinds of racist stuff, all kinds of misogynistic <laughs> stuff, all kinds of like all of it. Yeah. I'm sure Tim can can come in on, on comic stuff and everything too. And comic <laughs> stuff. like it's my poor DC. I, I have movies. qualms. <laughs> But, but Middle Earth. <laughs> Back to Middle Earth. We talked about a lot so, of men. <laughs> so there's one more man that yes. we definitely want to talk about today. And he directly relates to that whole difference in adaptation for Aragorn in terms of, you know, wants to be king, really wants to just be able to go off and smooch Arwen and needs to be king to do that, that distinction. And that is talking about Elrond. So... 
Elrond is a character that I really like to look at in terms of masculinity in Tolkien because he's fairly complex and has a lot of sort of like positive and negative qualities here. There's a lot of amazing aspects of his masculinity that I am going to get into in a second. But one of my big bugaboos is he leaves a little bit to be desired as a father. He does a lot of trying to control his daughter's love life. He does a lot of like very judgmental, very controlling, very patriarchal, like father knows best sort of things. He has a lot of discussions with Arwen, with Aragorn and all of this that are very deeply keyed to this idea that this woman who this this elf woman who has spent several centuries upon Middle Earth has no ability to know her own mind, at least mm. for a period of time. He does eventually come around. He does accept it. It's certainly like filtered through his lens of grief of knowing that if she stays in Middle Earth, he is not going to get to see her. But not for nothing, like he leaves for the Undying Lands and we have no record of any of his kids actually going. Like there's <laughs> there's some tension there. Mm. He gives off really big like that dad that sits his daughter's prom date down to you know, these are all With the rules shotgun. for. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what was that show? Like, you know, 10 rules for dating my teenage daughter or whatever. Oh, kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Like that yep. sort of yeah. feeling like, you know, you will bring her home by 10 p.m. Yeah. And then. And then they yeah, and then they take the fucking shotgun picture kind of thing. It's supposed to be all cutesy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't get the weird incest vibe from Elrond that I get from almost every single one of those men who do that. Yeah. But yeah, it, it is uh, in the same vein. Yeah. Elrond is definitely a less toxic version of masculinity than that. But in that particular vector, like, that's not great. But there are so many great examples of non-toxic masculinity from him in other vectors you know he's a warrior and a leader he is a herald of gilgalad but he's not a warhawk we don't see him advocating war for the sake of war we don't get a lot of information from tolkien on him you know leading forces there's not a lot of details there it's not tolkien doesn't fetishize the details of war he talks about its impacts on people but you're not going to find a lot of glorious battle descriptions in Tolkien's writing. It's summary is an important information. And I've noted in a, a previous episode that a lot of our, you know, famous warrior characters don't, their, their grand weapons aren't even named until their deaths, until they fall in battle. Like it's, it's not glorified uh, in the same way that we see in a lot of, a lot of fantasy literature and adaptations and everything now. Elrond is associated with the hearth and the home. He founds Rivendell like under these birch trees and it's the last homely house and it's a place of refuge and safety and it's a sanctuary. It's a place of healing. It's a place of learning. It is a place to counteract false information it's where characters go to to get on course yeah it's a place where a lot of characters have a lot of introspective sort of self-examination kind of moments which is something you know that's very much against the yes and alpha male masculinity idea and where that's fostered and allowed to flourish and supported and all of that 
there's the healing aspect too. Like he's a healer. He heals Frodo. He he heals other characters. He is known for his ability to do this. And that's a really key piece in the more positive aspects of Tolkien's masculinity is that men are allowed to and rather expected to be healers. The hands of the healer mm. are the hands of the king. Aragorn is a healer. Uh, Elrond is. This is something that it's not just to destroy, but it's to repair is important. I just had a thought. That whole hands of a healer, hands of a king, and Elrond also being a healer. Do you think that might just be a family trait? Yes, but I think Tolkien <laughs> means it in a blood purity way. <laughs> you know, since Elrond is, wrong. <laughs> is Aragorn's great, 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 however, uncle. And yeah. foster dad. Yeah. Which is yeah. another thing. Like, for all that there are issues in some of the few scenes that we get with Elrond and Arwen, Elrond has a long history of fostering the the sons of Numenor. He takes mm. on this supportive fatherly role and is present in the lives of generations of children. And that's not necessarily something that that is often teased out in adaptation or anything i don't think there's a lot of times that we see that there except for maybe some fan-made films and, and things like that it's lovely too because he's paying back what happened to him mm. and his That's two really dads i think yeah. there's part of a, a, a racial aspect to that as well because a lot of the positive masculinity characteristics that aragorn exhibits are more elven in nature than they are mannish in nature. Man as race rather than man as masculine in Middle Earth. Yeah. Like, you know, the healing, the insight, the counsel, all that sort of thing are things that you can either directly or sort of insinuate came from Aragorn's elven upbringing. Mm. Hot take. Mm. Is the blood of Numenor actually just elvishness? <laughs> <laughs> I would rather it I want it to be that so much instead of literal blood. Yeah. But like the next level of that meme is that it's not actually anything having to do with like elvishness or blood or whatever. It's just that like a slightly less patriarchal, slightly less toxic than the norm manner of upbringing carried through generation to generation. This is we're doing the galaxy brain meme now. Yeah. Oh, just patriarchy. What? <laughs> <laughs> and so we've talked a lot about that particular paper from Rawls that's in Perilous and Fair. And th that's a paper that I, every time I read it, I have a lot of dialogue with it because there are things that I deeply agree with and things that I definitely like am taken aback by. And, yep. you know, I'd, I'm not sure we'd phrase that this way today, but the point is, is a key one and all that. So, as we're, we're talking about that paper, as folks are reading it, it's one that I am, am frequently in tension and dialogue with, but it has a lot of really good things, too. She kind of breaks uh, different characteristics of uh, people in Middle Earth down into binary gender categories, which I, that's one of the things that I think we wouldn't quite do the same way today. But a point that she makes in there is that Elrond 
embodies a blend of these masculine and feminine traits and, and feminine principles like healing, insight, counsel, love, mercy, compassion. These are all things that Elrond exhibits and embodies throughout the text. And she also makes the point that having that that blend of characteristics is better than any extreme. The characters who are presented as most favorable are the ones who have the best balance, essentially. One of the things that I really like about how Elrond and a lot of other men in Middle-earth are portrayed is the activities that we see them doing and how we see those traits and qualities exhibited in those behaviors. And here I want to take a moment to talk about emotional labor. So emotional labor is basically the amount of unseen, unacknowledged, unpaid, uncompensated work that goes into uh, so many of the things that make society or a household or a relationship function. And disproportionately, emotional labor is done to a far greater degree by women or people who are coded more feminine in their relationships and uh, and situations. And what is fascinating to me about a lot of the men of Middle Earth is that we see them, whether it's Elrond, Aragorn, the hobbits, you know, we see men cooking, cleaning, tending the hearth, giving information, sharing insight, being self-reflective, planning out the logistics of things, executing plans large and small, just going through all of the steps that it takes to manifest any action. Partly that's because women aren't shown doing a lot of things in a lot of detail in Tolkien's Middle Earth. But some of that is just that there's a view of masculinity that is not as rigid and and binary and toxic as what we are subjected to in our everyday day to day. And I think emotional labor is something that is really important to talk about because In some ways, it seems very small in comparison to some of the other toxic things that we deal with. But the disproportional amount of emotional labor that occurs within our society is something that even in the most egalitarian relationships, we are still struggling with and we can still be improving on. It is a place where at every level of everything that we see, we can be doing better and we can be working to acknowledge this, this soapbox rant brought to you by the number of times that I've listened to the Harris Paloma song labor on TikTok recently. (laughs) I would just like to point out for listeners, literally in our show notes, all that is written here is emotional labor rant, all caps. (laughs) I have a soapbox. I have several. Uh, now, I, I I do think that emotional labor is that point that you're making is very important because in this particular context, because what we see in Tolkien is there is nobody weaponizing incompetence. Mm. Yes. Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. that is where a lot of this emotional labor breakdown ends up happening. Uh, when you read articles about it, it's... Counterpoint. It's, Movie Aowen making that shitty stew, maybe weaponizing <laughs> incompetence. 
I'll allow it. <laughs> Jesus. But you usually yeah. read articles about the emotional labor falling on the feminine people in relationships and it's surrounding things like, oh, well, my husband purposefully loads the dishwasher in a way that is going to break plates. So I keep doing it and he doesn't do it anymore. And like, that's not really, I, I will grant the stew. That's not really something you see in <laughs> Tolkien. Like everyone is capable of keeping their own lives running in a way that Western society has a tendency to infantilize men while still pumping them up as these, you know, like, strong alpha creatures and it's not something that happens in Tolkien big time I mean going off topic a little bit but in The Hobbit Bilbo gets very upset at the dwarves you know risking breaking his plates and everything like this like being able to keep house to manage one's domestic affairs to manage one's everyday logistics is something that is taken as just a standard operating procedure no one is going around and saying well you know i can't plan the route or whatever like i i just want to i want to go here and you have to to figure out how we're going there or whatever there's discussion equal discussion between the different stakeholders of you know what route we're taking as the fellowship and everything like just all along the way that emotional labor piece is not is not just up by the wayside. I also want to look at Elrond in adaptation. So in a, pretty much every adaptation that we have, we see that wisdom and insight, the capacity for counsel and all of that, no matter what his appearance is or how he's depicted. Uh, if you look at like the Bakshi and the Rankin-Bass animated versions, the depictions of Elrond are wildly different, like stunningly mm. wildly different I don't think that we have an adaptation so far that is an agreement as to what Elrond's hair looks like. Yes, short hair in the Bakshi and then short hair again in Rings of Power. Yeah, <laughs> but he always has this like gravitas and care and, and intellect and what have you. When we get to the live action adaptations, though, Hugo Weaving plays him brilliantly and plays him with all of those nuances across all of everything. But I think that we can't set aside the cultural impact that the that actor being cast in that role that that gives the people who are advancing this manosphere agenda the ability to map other things on to just the depiction of Elrond. Welcome to Rivendell, Mr. Mr. Anderson. Anderson. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's, it's the joke we all get because yeah. Most people don't know Hugo Weaving. Their first association past Lord of the Rings is not, you know, Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. It <laughs> is Mr. Smith. Agent Smith. Yeah. Agent Smith. Sorry. It's Agent Smith that is our first connotation of the infamous roles that, that he's played in other in other films. And that joke crosses over into Lord of the Rings. But that movie, which is a movie, The Matrix, is a movie that is written, directed by trans filmmakers that is frequently read as a trans allegory that there's a lot of support for that reading for and everything, is also what is being referenced by all of these Manosphere folks talking about red-pilling 
And the iconography from that film is something that is uh, often twisted and mapped on to really hateful ideologies. And I don't think that we can set aside that piece of adaptation, that connotation that people have even subconsciously. Then as we get to the live action adaptation of Rings of Power, the internet has some spicy things to say, at least a subsection of it does, about not liking Elrond in the adaptation because, and these are just a few quotes that I pulled in a three-second Google search, he's not high status enough in that adaptation. Uh, He doesn't have enough power. He looks like he just sits on a couch all day and watches Netflix, and that he lacks Hugo Weaving's charisma. Those points might sound familiar to anyone who's ever had the misfortune of hearing, you know, Andrew Tate, men's rights activist, a pickup artist, and all that speak and give their presentations. Those themes are things that come through in both of those spheres. Like, do they think Hugo Weaving look is crazy built or something? He's also like, he's just a a, a wiry dude. Like, <laughs> he doesn't look particularly powerful or anything. But his charisma. Yeah. I was going to say, maybe his, his aura. They're all reading his aura as, <laughs> you know, he just exudes doodliness. <laughs> I mean, and again, I'm like, I, I'm also like, you know, I see Hugo Weaving and I see Elrond, but then I also see Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. I remember when they cast it, like when they cast Hugo Weaving, and I was like, really? He's such a yeah. weird looking dude. <laughs> that he's an elf? Yeah. I mean, it works, but it's it works if you if you consider that the last adaptation before that I think was the I actually don't remember whether Rankin Bass or Bakshi came out later, but he looks a lot more like the Rankin Bass version than the Ralph Bakshi version. Yeah. Also, of all the elves to have a problem with the casting and Rings of Power, really Elrond <laughs> is the one you're going with. Elrond. In in complete <laughs> fairness and complete disclosure, most of those spicy comments, when someone did respond to them, they were not endorsing the spicy comment. They were instead saying that, you know, Elrond and Doran forever. So. Mm. <laughs> Elrond, Doran, and Disa forever. Yes. Amen. Forever and ever. Power Amen. rubble. <laughs> Amen. Uh, so, yeah. Anything else that you guys want to throw in here before we wrap up? But one of the things I wanted to touch on when I was talking about Faramir and then I got all flustered because Faramir. <laughs> we, yeah, we often think about swords in a, a, a very masculine way. And it, it comes up with Aragorn as well. Like Aragorn is I am bringing the sword of Elendil to Minas Tirith and Faramir is like, no, nah, man, I'm good. Like, I don't like swords at all. and. I'm just doing this because I absolutely have to. And I, I'm still kind of partially writing this paper in my head about how Faramir and Eowyn's relationship is really fucking queer. And uh, that, that... Stay tuned. Yeah, I, there, there's definitely like a Freudian way of reading <laughs> all of that. <laughs> yeah, Faramir, I don't need your phallic symbol. You yes, can keep that. You can keep it. I am confident enough in my manhood. <laughs> I definitely recall an undergrad writing a paper about the Easter uprising of 1916 in Ireland 
And that being the first place we're in a, a source from uh, about the 1940s or 50s. So, you know, when Tolkien is writing, that being the first place that I had personally encountered a like full, full chapter length description of the idea that the researcher had that swords and blades were phallic objects and the, the appeal of violence is also a sexual appeal for for men in war and all of that. And so knowing that that's a contemporary viewpoint from the ty- point in time when Tolkien is writing, I do appreciate the Faramir approach. <laughs> I was going to say uh, about Aragorn, one of the moments that probably points to something something deeper when he leaves Narsil at or I guess at that point, it's it's not Narsil anymore, but uh, when he leaves his sword at the doors of Meduseld, and it takes a, a long time to acquiesce to the request. He is like, I don't want anybody else touching this. Nobody else can touch it. If you're going to, if you draw the sword of Elendil and you're not an heir of Elendil, you're going to die. And <laughs> it takes him a really long time to part ways with it. And I'm kind of like, there's something going on there. Something deeper, just beyond, you know, this is my toy, <laughs> I want it. My Andreal. This is my Andreal. My flame of the West. Yeah. Oh, no. Kind of like, if you... <laughs> You're not going to get to start calling it that. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, maybe I'm not reading too much into that then. Uh, it seems. I was going to say that uh, there's. There's some Freudian support there for you. And then to go back to the movies, that fucking shot of Aragorn unwielding Handreel for the first time when you're just like, sword for so long. I'm sorry, after the camera has lovingly gone up and down his (laughs) V-neck chest in his underwear. Yeah, I remember that scene. (laughs) I may have used that scene in a video edit last week. Yeah. <laughs> His tastefully unlaced uh, red shirt, just showing just a a lovely, uh, lovely little taste of what's Goes going down on. Down to mid chest, mid chest. Yeah. So <sighs> some behind the scenes information. We were just I forgot what we were discussing, but I believe it was Leah posted a picture of Eric. No, it was Grace posted a picture of Eric Horn. Okay. So. I made a fan vid that no, features a hundred five. Because she was like, okay, who else has unbuttoned shirts in fantasy? And I was like, the sluttiest man in Middle Earth, Aragorn. <laughs> and Grace was like, where does this come from? And I was like, oh, I know exactly where it came from. <laughs> like, I needed to know the timestamp to find it and put it in this fan vid that I was making. It has a hundred and five different fandoms in it. And it's about just how, you know, men on screen are allergic to buttons on their shirts. You know, it's a highbrow yeah. concept. And my my beloved uh, podcast folks here helped me find that and then the vid does end with everyone looking at uh, Frodo's mithril shirt after it's <laughs> nice <laughs> nice choice perfect, perfect. yeah I, I saw like that red unlaced shirt and I was like that's when Elrond's giving him the sword <laughs> <laughs> you like, could immediately Frodian analysis like on that scene alone man oh gosh right? yeah. in the tent with I his mean, dad also this man just like walking up and being like i am taking this meeting in my underwear yeah <laughs> it's a fucking power move <laughs> <laughs> this meeting 
I'm thinking this meeting with dad in my underwear, basically. It's kind of like, okay. My dad slash future father-in-law. Yeah. Yeah. Like, power move. It's big, like, Wall Street, like, come talk to me while I'm at the urinal (laughs) energy or something like that, right? Like, (laughs) I'm too important. I'm too important. We we can have this meeting while I'm shitting. In all honesty, (laughs) one of my favorite things about Aragorn is uh, the Council of Elrond scene. In which essentially, like everyone is showing up, they're they're doing all of the sharing of information and whatever. And Boromir has this very like put together appearance, and he has his mission, and he has you know his self importance and all that. And Aragorn is sitting over there in, in the corner, essentially just like wearing sweatpants to the meeting. You <laughs> <laughs> oh, can get away with it. He's the future king. Yeah, he's allowed. Power move. Go, going Super. back to the daddy slash father in law thing, and how <laughs> and how Elrond had such a, a hard time with Arwen wanting to marry Aragorn. I was thinking, like, what if Arendis didn't have like such a shitty family, and they actively tried to talk her out of marrying Eldarion because they were Aww. obviously mismatched into like uh, life expectancies and everything as well, like. As much mm-hmm. as we read Elrond as being toxic there as a like a toxic father, I don't know. I, I can understand why he would be upset about that relationship. It doesn't give him leeway to try to end it because Arwen is, you know, thousands of years old at that point. But mm, I, yeah. I do think about Arendis and how some counsel probably would have helped her in that situation. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It doesn't give him leeway to be kind of like you have to be the king to marry my daughter. I won't let anybody less marry her. Also, the audacity of saying you have to be king to marry my daughter. My dude, she can make that decision. Yeah, like, anyway. Well, that was another piece of Aragorn, I guess, is that in in a couple of different places, he, he sort of likens Arwen to treasure and to something that he's kind of obtained or like has been kind of given to him you know definitely some modification there yeah and it's sort of like on on one level it's kind of like oh yes of course she's she's his treasure how how sweet and romantic and on the other you're kind of like well hold on is hold on who's who's giving who to whom and who are you really likening a woman to something that you've grabbed out of the uh I don't know, treasure chest. It's kind of like, I don't know. It feels, again, much and much like a lot of other stuff about Aragorn, it rubs rubs you the wrong way sometimes. So, what's what's our takeaway from our from our long conversation here today? I guess when we were talking about putting this episode together, I sort of found myself thinking that. I'm really a lot less interested in articles on the internet that sort of assert one of two things, whether Tolkien's characters are perfect men and perfect ideal antidotes to toxic masculinity, or on the complete opposite end, Tolkien was clearly a misogynist and all of his characters are, they're all toxic, he and they should be canceled. Obviously, neither of those are wholly true, especially the Tolkien was a toxic misogynist bit. If we canceled Tolkien, we wouldn't have a podcast. So I'm not interested in those sorts of takes. Personally, I'm more interested in what values we praise or reject in different masculinities 
what that says about our underlying values and ideals and how we can embody and admire what is the best of these men and these masculinities in Tolkien, while recognizing that our ideals may or may not be supported in these masculinities that are embodied by these characters. I'm a lot more interested in 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 queering in queering the men of um, of Tolkien than I am in sort of assigning labels of toxic and positive to to each of them. We're looking for apex homosexuals, not alpha chads. So thank you all so much for joining us today and listening to us yell a bit about the patriarchy, one of our favorite pastimes. But more than that, talk about how much we love these these particular characters and how these alternative expressions of masculinity really shine through in Tolkien and are something that we can really admire and look to. And we also really want to shout out friend of the pod, Elise, who pointed out her thoughts about Aldarian and masculinity to us. And we loved it so much that we incorporated that into the podcast. If you listeners have any other characters that you'd like to hear us discuss, especially in this sort of masculinities and gender sort of frame, again, please feel free to reach out to us. Uh, Send us an email and contact us through Messenger on Facebook as well. You can find us and future episodes on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, or you can stream episodes directly from Zancaster, which is uh, zencaster.com slash queer lodgings, a token podcast, dashes in between all of those words. Leave us a rating, like, share, and subscribe. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash queer lodgings. You can find us at Twitter at queer underscore lodgings. And if you'd like to email us your feedback or ideas for future episodes, you can find us at queerlodgingspodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again, you guys. stop oh. you right there you mispronounced tucker carlson's name <laughs> what did i say tucker carlton <laughs> oh fuck <laughs> now that that's the end tag here's the thing <laughs> he's a I mean, shithead we, mi- we don't misname people so <laughs> Uh, Sorry, I wanted to catch you before you got like really on a roll. That's okay. We're (laughs) going to just reread that last paragraph there. Tim, cut that later. (laughs) (laughs) We'll see. Make me sound smarter. It's just going to be like. Preserve the nerd cred. It's going to be Grace mispronouncing Tucker Carlson's name and then Mr. (laughs) Smith. (laughs) The end tag. That could be at the end. Um,